Welcome to Techno, where Sophos experts explore, explain, and hopefully help you to understand the often baffling world of computer security. Techno is presented by me, Paul Ducklin. And me, Chuck Wisniewski. And Chester, in the past, when we've done these, we've had science and engineering titles like All About Java or Understanding Vulnerabilities. But today's title is the much more intriguing When Penguins Attack. So let's kick off by you telling us what you mean by that. Well, I was invited to speak at a Linux conference on the security topic, and I started looking into it and thought, rather than get into the debate over Linux malware in and of itself, which is, you know, of course, malware attacking Linux systems the same way we perceive malware attacking Windows systems or Mac systems, for example, I thought it might be interesting to look at the other side of it, which is uh, what role does Linux play in spreading malware since we think clearly of Linux more as a server operating system or perhaps the operating system that powers the cloud more than we think of Linux as a desktop computing platform. So the penguin refers to Tux, the the, uh, Linux logo, right? Yeah, exactly. And and when you look on Google for uh, angry penguins, there's actually quite a lot of interesting things out there, but very little about Linux. So I thought maybe it was time to fix that. So it seems like the background to your research, and indeed that title, When Penguins Attack, rather than When Penguins Get Attacked, is reflecting this fact that in the malware ecosystem or the cybercrime ecosystem, it seems like Windows is the primary platform that the crooks want to infect, whereas Linux is, if you like, the enabler or the infector, the delivery platform. Yeah, that actually is one of the conclusions uh, that I came to, but I wasn't really sure when we began the research. Those of us in the security community like to think of Windows as being sort of the weak link in the security chain, if you will. And I thought, you know, what is the real impact of the operating system hosting all of this stuff? You know, is it Windows? Is it Linux? What is the, the, the mix, if you will, of how likely a given operating system is to be part of that attack chain? So tell us quickly in your research what prevalence you found for the various server operating systems, so Windows, the BSDs, Linux, etc., and the various software stacks that provide uh, networking and web servers and database backend services. Well, I took a look at 178,000 URLs that I gathered from about a week's worth of data in Sophos Labs. And I, you know, took a look at that, as you say, kind of by platform initially to say, you know, is this theory that Windows or Linux is more or less involved, uh, even valid, you know, is, is, is the mix of malicious websites, say, identical to the mix of legitimate websites saying they're, they're equally likely, say, uh, to be involved in the attack chain. So just as a quick aside, uh, let's just look at those numbers. That's 178,000 new malicious URLs, in other words, stuff that wasn't in our database before, in one week. Yes. So actually, whether it's penguins attacking or windows attacking, there's still an awful lot of it out there. When you went looking, how did it all break down? Well, in the end, I discovered that uh, 20.1% of the services that were spreading malicious web content were hosted on some sort of a Microsoft platform. The majority of those being Internet Information Server, but there's a lot of different Microsoft web servers, so I I sort of lumped them all together. And then the next uh, one I looked at was Apache on Unix and Linux hosts, which was 36.5% of the malicious URLs that I discovered. 
followed up by 15.9% running Nginx, a quite popular high-speed web server and proxy used more on the, I would say more on the enterprise side of uh, web hosting. And then after that was uh, 9.6% were running some sort of a Google-identified web server, meaning it was operated in some way by Google. And then it kind of falls off from there. If you take out that 20.1% that are Windows, probably IIS-like, the rest are almost all running on Linux, aren't they? Yes. Whatever whatever web server platform they ha- and database backend they happen to have. Yeah, the ones I were able to identify as, as Linux specifically were about 79%. So there's, there's a, a fraction of a percent in there that I was not able to identify or identified as being some sort of BSD like FreeBSD or Mac OS X. It does look, just at first blush, 178,000 brand new malicious URLs in just one week. 80% of them are hosted on Linux. Their goal is mostly, if I'm not wrong, to get malware onto a Windows computer to make money out of the victim in some way. So why is it that penguins attack? What's the reason that so many Linux servers are getting infected? Well, there's no definitive way to know precisely how these Linux boxes came to be compromised. But one of the things I was trying to do with the data set that we have was try to figure out how many of them are innocent websites that have been compromised by criminals instead of, say, intentionally set up by criminals to host bad things, and then look at the data for those innocent ones and see if there was any indicators uh, uh, as to why, uh, you know, you might pick a Linux box over a Windows box. And, uh, you know, the data was pretty interesting from that perspective in that uh, I was worried that a lot of these sites might get cleaned up very quickly after that we discovered them being attacked. So, you know, this week's worth of data, I was working very quickly to see if I could figure out what kind of thing they might be hosting that was malicious and maybe how they got infected. Uh, fearing that they would be cleaned up and taken offline and I wouldn't be able to gather the data. And unfortunately, um, that didn't happen. I mean, nearly all of them were online uh, for the week after I gathered the data. And in fact, many of them were online even a month later, which suggests that perhaps one of the reasons that criminals may choose to target Linux is that it has a a long time of infection, that that people aren't closely observing them and aren't aware that they're infected and, and aren't cleaning them up. So 80% of the servers that are trying to foist malware on Windows users are running Linux. What percentage of those do you think are actually run by the crooks as part of their own infrastructure, the core of what they're doing? And how much is basically free malicious hosting that they're borrowing, or rather, let me say, stealing from people whose security isn't quite up to scratch? How did that divide out? Well, the numbers actually divide out about the same as the other number. I think, again, we're at kind of the 80-20 mark when I look at the whole picture. And presumably the reason that they go after your server and my server rather than hosting them themselves is exactly the same reason that they use end users' Windows computers for sending spam. A, it makes them a moving target, and B, someone else is footing the bill. Yeah, and and C, they can uh, cash out on your positive reputation, right? Uh, sites like Google and Bing that that rank pages for search uh, often look at things uh, based on their reputation to decide on that page rank, as Google calls it. And so by commandeering sites that are uh, hosting you know, legitimate content that perhaps have been around for a year or five or maybe even 10 years are going to rank more highly in search results and perhaps have their own uh, organic traffic, as it's called in the, in the marketing uh, department, uh, coming to them to, to find more victims. 
So if somebody does take action by saying, hey, you're going on a block list, it's not the crooks. It's uh, it's the person who is running the insecure server. Yeah, and it's a real nightmare for the victims because you can imagine all the different security companies out there that discover that your website is hosting something malicious and put you on a blacklist. Okay, so the crooks are getting into other people's servers. A, they can steal their page rank. B, they can steal their bandwidth. C, they let the other person take the blame. Once they're in, how do they get the malware from these delivery computers, from the infected Linux servers, onto the victim's Windows computer? What are the primary vehicles that they use for actually doing the penguin attack, if we can call it that? Well, usually the innocent websites uh, just have a a kind of redirection link of some sort embedded to them that point to something malicious down the line. Uh, you know, most large web hosts and providers are intolerant of hosting the malware itself on their network. And if they hear about it or discover it, they'll very quickly shut down those websites. So when I looked at the data set, for example, large providers like Rackspace were nearly non-existent for hosting a, a Windows Trojan file, for example, because they, they very carefully monitor their networks. So what the criminals want to do with these innocent sites that are infected is, is simply use them as sort of the top of a funnel to, 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 to let you slide down this funnel and redirect you towards something in the end at the bottom of the funnel that's maybe hosted somewhere more dodgy that's willing to host bad things that the criminals can put exploits on. So this is the sort of thing we call an exploit kit, right? It's it's typically some JavaScript, tries to enumerate your environment, it works out what version of Windows you've got, maybe what browser you're using, what plugins you've got, picks from a list of available exploits that are likely to work, and then tries them one at a time in the hope that one of them will work. And if it does, bingo, then they stuff malware on your computer and they can choose what malware they want to deliver at delivery time, can't they? Yeah, they in fact they they look at your geolocation or other things and kind of put you into a a bidding marketplace for different criminals to bid on how much they're willing to pay to put their malware on your computer. So if they're currently deciding that they want to do a denial of service attack against German banks, perhaps if you're a German user hitting that website, they may install a DDoS bot uh, onto your computer to make their attack be more localized and more powerful and. Yet maybe you hit that same malicious website from Japan and maybe today they'll install a ransomware thing to steal your files and lock them up with encryption uh, so that you have to pay a a ransom to get them back. But in the criminal marketplaces, they actually kind of have a, a, you know, bidding on this stuff. And of course, the, the criminal controlling all those infected websites wants to maximize the amount of profit he's going to get by selling, you know, people to the highest bidder. Well, that was the next question I wanted to ask. I I guess if you're the guy who's actually paying to have your malware delivered, the money you're going to be making, you'll make from things like spamming, the data that you steal, DDoS as you start, the ransomware you install, people paying the fee and so forth. But if you're a crook running the server side of the business, how do they charge for those services? What are you buying when when, when you've written some malware and you want to get it out, say, to victims in New Zealand? What do you buy from the crooks who are actually running the attack penguins? Well, usually it's done in what's called paper install, uh, and, and, and that's kind of what I was referring to with some of this bidding, right? I'm, I'm uh, as a budding malware author who's got some new ransomware, I'm going to you know, go to a forum and say, I'm willing to pay 75 cents per victim if you can distribute my malware for me, and the victims I'm looking for run Windows or OS X or are in Germany. And usually the more specific the criteria are, the, the higher the price you're going to pay as a criminal to, to, to buy those services. 
it sounds as though what you're saying really is that even in what we might perhaps rather casually call broad brush cybercrime, almost all attacks have some element of targeting in them, don't they? Yeah, it's a capitalist marketplace for the criminals. And so as they're getting more and more refined and getting more and more specialized into different types of crimes, they want different types of victims. Right. What do we do to take the attack penguins out of the equation? If you're the somebody who's buying time on a hosted server that's running Linux, or if you're the operator of those hosted servers yourself, what do you do to try and cut the crooks out of the equation and, and uh, begin to win the game? Well, I was very cautious in my research not to break any laws. So I, I don't have absolute strict facts as to, for example, how many of these sites uh, were victims of vulnerabilities in a particular software application or library that wasn't patched on the system. Because in order to, to find out whether they'd be vulnerable, I would have to actually attack them, which I wasn't willing to do. But I was able to gather a lot of information about how up-to-date those servers were to give me an idea of how likely that might be why they were attacked. And we also have a lot of other information anecdotally from helping victims out uh, that reach out when they have problems to kind of discover some of the ways that people are being attacked. And I think the two primary ways Linux boxes are, are being targeted is through uh, software vulnerabilities and also through credentials being stolen. Many websites are still being updated with things like FTP, where those credentials are not only transmitted in plain text, but often cached or stored in web browsers or FTP helper programs for publishing websites that may be stolen by other malware. So as well as that mantra that we often repeat, update early, update often, there's also a, another key part of that that we don't always say, isn't there, which is update everything. In other words, it's not good enough to update your Linux and then your LAMP stack if you then don't go and update these special plugins which you've added because they seemed a good idea at the time that are actually directly processing potentially hostile remote content like images or emails or blog comments. A rather famous example from last year for WordPress was one called Tim Thumb that's a thumbnail generation plugin for making thumbnails of your images on your blog and it was installed on millions of WordPress sites around the world and it had a vulnerability that had nothing to do with even updating the, the content management platform itself. You then had to go and get the fix from this third party. And so I think that's where we often get ourselves in the most trouble. And my own experience as a long-time Linux user is the open source world is very rich in dependencies, isn't it? I've often done something like package get new software I'd like to install, which is something fairly modest, say a uh, graphical calculator, and uh, you'll get a list back saying, oh, you also need to install the following giant list of libraries. And of course, any one of those could bring a problem with it. So it seems that when you're, when you're configuring a Linux server, whether it's the host itself or whether it's one of the virtual machines running on it, it's actually really important to know which bits depend on what. And that map may be non-trivial to draw, but you really have to do it, don't you? Yeah, you do. And, and I, think, I think we're getting better at this, but we're not necessarily taking action on it. You need to perhaps get yourself in the habit of just like Update Tuesday, picking a date in the calendar, setting it recurring and saying, hey, it's the 10th. I'm going to go check all my Linux boxes and make sure they're up to date. 
make sure those processes have been working and that I got all those fixes. And uh, from the evidence that I saw looking at the version numbers of Apache web servers or Nginx web servers, the version numbers of PHP being advertised by some of them, these types of things that the vast majority of the systems that were compromised were not just a little bit out of date, but at least a year or more out of date. Okay, Chester, I want to get towards wrapping up now. Um, So I'm going to ask you the $64 question that so often causes flame wars in the Linux world. Can a Linux antivirus help you? Well, I'd like to think the answer is yes. I mean, when I looked at this, of course, all of these sites were detected by our products as being infected. And of course, that suggests uh, that at least 178,000 that week were something that antivirus would have helped. And if that's not enough reason, I don't really know what is. The tools and techniques the criminals are using to direct you to these exploit kits or operate these exploit kits often include obfuscated JavaScript, PHP coding, iframes, these types of things. And antivirus, in addition to just looking for Trojan horses for Windows, can identify that malicious code when it's stored in your website and alert you to that fact so you can protect your visitors and customers. There is a great irony here, isn't there, that on Windows, everyone's scrambling to make sure that their antivirus is preventative, has an on-access scanner that will stop you getting infected in the first place. The days of just detecting after the event are kind of over. That's, That's a last resort. But it seems that in the Linux world, where one server could end up infecting hundreds of thousands of Windows users, some sites, at least in your research, were staying infected for so long that even if they'd done a virus scan once a week, they'd have actually been in a much better state and helped the next guy that much more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I recommend people use an on-access scanner on Linux no different than they would in Windows. But for those that uh, fear the performance impact that they perceive might, you know, that that might uh, incur, which I don't really think is there. But if, if you think that, like you say, maybe if, you know, if you run it daily or weekly at 3 a.m. On a, on a cron job to just check everything and make sure it doesn't look like anything's been altered by any malicious code, I don't see why you wouldn't. Uh, in fact, uh, our antivirus for Linux is available entirely for free. So there's no cost in performance. There's no cost in dollars. Uh, I think it would be silly not to just have a little health check once in a while to be sure that things look okay. It's just like full disk encryption. In many cases, people are against it because they say, oh, it's going to eat 4% of my CPU. They try it, and either it doesn't eat anything at all that they can measure, or they realize that the difference is so negligible that it actually doesn't affect their ability to work at all, or it doesn't affect the ability of their server to deliver files to their users. Yeah, and I think we're we're finally getting past that stage where CPU uh, is really a factor in in anything. Uh, you know, I've got six cores in my phone that I'm not sure what to do with. <laughs> Sounds like a song. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've got six cores on my wagon and I'm still rolling along. But you know, on, on our web servers, of course, uh, at one point we were also fearful of the impact of having SSL enabled or TLS enabled for the the performance impact. And I think Google and Facebook have published study after study showing that that is completely a myth at this point. Something like antivirus, encryption, TLS, all of these things are quite irrelevant in a modern operating system, considering uh, how beneficial they are to us for having them. A bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? It is. And I think as, as professional IT people, we need to think about our friends and family as well. One of the things um, that, that struck me about the data was how many of these sites clearly are operated by non-professionals. 
for their small businesses, for their church group, for their soccer club, this kind of thing. And uh, we need to, I think, get away from telling people, hey, you know, go to cheap web host X and for five bucks a month, you can set up a blog to tell everybody when the next game is or when the next gathering is. And instead, maybe start urging our friends and neighbors, if they're not professional IT people or they can't afford professional people to do the services for them, maybe this is a really good opportunity to move to the cloud and, and, and use a cloud-hosted blog or this kind of thing instead where, where professionals are there to maintain the security and monitor those, those sites for compromise and provide a little extra layer of, of benefit. Chester, I think that's a great place to end. What I've realized out of this is once again proof that an injury to one is an injury to all, or in this case, an injury to one server can be an injury to thousands, hundreds of thousands of users. So if you do have Linux servers, don't be one of those uh, who let your penguin attack. Be defensive and uh, stay strong against the crooks. If you enjoyed this podcast, by the way, we have plenty more at soundcloud.com slash Sophos Security. And until next time, stay secure.